This is Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. The public's trust in the news media is slipping. According to a recent Gallup poll, 39% of Americans say they have no trust in the media at all. That's a record high or low, depending on how you look at it. This is a problem for newsrooms as they try to figure out how to stay relevant and solvent. But it's not just an existential crisis for the media. As trust in the media declines, so does trust in science, higher education and government. And with another consequential presidential election looming, the role of journalism has never been more important. Today, we'll talk with Joy Mayer, the founder and director of Trusting News, about how journalists can win back trust and help the public be better informed. Also joining the conversation, Alex Mahadevan, director of MediaWise at Pointer, who talks about combating disinformation, teaching people to think like fact-checkers and journalists, and understanding the platforms and places where disinformation thrives. We recorded this conversation at the Pointer Institute in St. Petersburg. Well, Alex Mahadevan is the director of MediaWise at the Pointer Institute. Alex, thank you so much for joining me. Glad to be here. Also joined by Joy Mayer, director of Trusting News, a project that researches news consumers and then helps journalists earn trust and demonstrate credibility. Joy, thank you. Thanks for having me. Alex, I want to start with you. MediaWise aims, and I'm quoting here, to empower people of all ages to become more critical consumers of content online. So how, how do you empower people to be more critical consumers and how has that work changed in the last few years? So uh, at its core, we teach people to think like fact checkers, think like journalists, so they can kind of be the, their own editors of their social media feed. Um, we do this a lot of ways and for a few different demographics. So for example, for teenagers, we have something called the Teen Fact Checking Network, which is a group of teens who create TikToks and YouTube videos where they find claims, um, sometimes weird, sometimes political, that they see online, and then they fact check them. And then they teach their fellow teens how they actually went about doing it. So our goal is to help people be able to see like a suspicious image online and be able to do a reverse image search or track down the uh, original creator. Basically, you know, be able to kind of be their own journalists, you know, police their social feed. And has that work changed a lot in the last little while since you've been with Pointer? Yeah, when we originally started, the goal was just to reach a million teenagers because there was some research uh, from Stanford that showed that teens were uh, on their phones all the time, but they could not separate fact from fiction. But what happened is I was traveling the country and I was having teachers and librarians come to me and say, hey, listen, I wish we had this for my aunt or uncle. You know, they're sharing Facebook stuff with me. So we branched out, partnered with the ARP and, and did some webinars and um, partnerships to uh, help older adults fight misinformation online. We have programming for Spanish speakers now, and um, we've expanded beyond the U.S. So we've, we've taken MediaWise to uh, eight countries, most recently a, a, a big program in Bulgaria. That's interesting to me that you're kind of tackling the issue from both ends of the age spectrum, teenagers and then uh, maybe retirees or people sort of 55 and older. What about the middle? Like, is there a kind of a donut hole of where news is going unfact-checked and maybe people are a little more resistant to, to being media savvy? That's a really good point. So what we found is that misinformation is very targeted. You know, it, it reaches different people in different ways and it affects them as uniquely as they are as individuals. So what we found is it was most effective to tailor media literacy videos, webinars, uh, social media posts, TikToks for each demographic, teens, Spanish speakers, older adults 
college students, first-time voters, but we do have a, a text message course that is really designed for anyone to be able to take that features, you know, Hari Srinivasan, Joan London, some big trusted names. So we do try to reach as many people as possible, but it's just a lot more effective when you kind of reach them where they are with names and trusted voices that they feel represented by. Sure. Joy, let me bring you into this conversation. According to a recent Gallup poll, Americans' level of trust in the media is as low as it was in 2016. Is is that a surprise to you? Unfortunately, it is not a surprise to me. The um, it's only getting more and more complicated to figure out what to trust. And um, our work at Trusting News is really about helping journalists help the public. So how can journalists make it easier for people to tell what is credible, what is trustworthy, and what isn't? Mm-hmm. Um, it, the more fractured the media landscape gets, the harder it is to be a news consumer. 39%, I'm just throwing some more stats out here, but 39%, according to this poll, say they have no trust in media at all, which is even lower than it was in 2016. I mean. What do you think it is that is making those numbers slide downhill? Well, everybody trusts somebody, right? If you think about that, your kind of diet of trust, if you think about where you spend your trust, everybody trusts somebody. So people will trust their media. People trust the sources that they turn to regularly. They don't trust the media. So the the as it gets easier to find information from a specific point of view, representing a specific idea, targeting a specific demographic. People glom onto that and trust that and have less and less trust in anything that doesn't sound like that. When you think about the last six or seven years, is are there some events that stick out for you that may account for this rapid erosion of trust in media? Well, absolutely, the political climate of the country makes a big difference. It's not a new idea or a an idea that began with President Trump to call journalists the enemy of the people, but definitely uh, that idea has gained a lot of steam and it's become sort of a um, a part of a partisan identity in some ways to not, not trust mainstream journalism. Mm-hmm. And there's also some pretty big gaps between Republicans and Democrats when it comes to media trust. And also, I wanted to ask you about the connection between trust in the media and how Americans view the government and their trust in those institutions. Do these things kind of go in tandem? They definitely do. I mean, trust in institutions is declining. Trust in science, trust in higher education, trust in government. Um, We're becoming more and more skeptical. And I want to point out about the political leanings. It's not just people who lean right who have lower trust in news. It's also independents. This is not a problem of like um, extreme political views. This is a a problem of um, people who fundamentally see the world differently and who don't see their own values and ideas reflected in journalism. Mm -hmm. Alex, you talked a little bit about misinformation and how that kind of influences how we consume things like breaking news stories. What are some of the things that work against news organizations uh, and the general public when they're trying to get an accurate picture of what's going on? Well, Newsrooms are competing against multiple social media platforms and millions of posts, billions of videos that are posted every day by uh, influencers that, unfortunately, you know, Gen Z, for example, trust more than a regular journalist. So you're going up against these, um, these, these like larger forces and influx of information um, that is totally unregulated. You know what I mean? So there, there is no. Uh, editor who's making sure a YouTube video is accurate. So, you know, an influencer can churn out 500 YouTube videos in, in, you know, a matter of a a month that 
will influence a lot of how people feel about the government, about institutions, and about journalists themselves. So, um, you know, newsrooms and, and, and journalists are up against social media right now. That's it. Mm-hmm. You've written quite a lot about something called click restraint. Can you explain what that is and why it's important? Click restraint is one of the uh, techniques that fact checkers use that we teach to teens, older adults, Spanish speakers, everyone. And it, it's the idea of when you are checking out a video, a TikTok, um, a post you find on Facebook, um, doing a quick search in a search engine you like and not clicking the first thing you see. Um, because a majority of people just click the first thing you see when you get those search results and it's going to be an ad, uh, uh, something that was gamed with SEO, so maybe not the, the most trustworthy information. So teaching people to slow down and scan search results uh, instead of clicking the first thing they see. And that kind of aligns with one of the, the biggest uh, uh, issues I see is that we've really become passive consumers of information. I blame the news feed originally, you know, from Facebook. Now they're all feeds. And so, you know, I mean, we just, we generally uh, uh, ingest news and information passively. And so the goal of something like click restraint and what MediaWise does is to get people to be active consumers of information and seeking out trustworthy sources. And you were talking about influences before, and that may have I mean, the name is emblematic of what the impact they have, right? People go to them for their for their information. But where else are younger people getting their news from? And what does that mean for how you try to hone your media literacy skills as a news consumer? Well, uh, unfortunately, a lot of teens and Gen Z are getting their news from TikTok or from YouTube influencers. I say, unfortunately, that's not always bad because a lot of news organizations are on TikTok. The Washington Post, for example, has a great TikTok. Um, so there, there are trustworthy sources, but they are few and far between. So, you know, what, what we try to do is um, in all of the media literacy videos and teen fact checks that we do is try to encourage them to essentially fact check anything they see on these platforms. So when they see news coming out about, you know, what, what's happening in the Middle East by some, you know, influencer who may sound confident and may have, uh, you know, might even have a check mark next to their name, uh, taking that extra step, leaving the platform and um, checking other sources for what they're saying. You know, that's another um, technique we teach, lateral reading, which is the concept of bouncing from whatever platform you're on and searching for more information about the creator or the post. Alex, you mentioned the check mark, and I think I read somewhere that you said you admitted you're addicted to X or the the platform formerly known as Twitter. So it's pretty hard even for somebody who's media savvy to exercise that click restraint, right? And for folks who maybe don't know some of the inner workings of how these media platforms work and kind of the influence they can have, that's got to be tough. Well, we work with the Stanford Social Media Lab, um, which uh, studies essentially, you know, psychology, because this is a, this is a problem with uh, our minds. It really is. We go to social media. Uh, I go to social media. I don't, I'm not proud of it, but I go to social media to be enraged, <laughs> to uh, uh, to be excited, enthused, you know, to be, you know, to be engaged. That's why we go there. And so, um, unfortunately, our emotions they override. Uh, any instinct to even take a fraction of a second and check someone's bio. So the goal for us is is to um, you know explain the kind of inner workings of why you know confirmation bias, why why we seek out you know 
uh, posts that confirm what we believe. And um, the most effective thing for me that what I found, uh, especially with older adults, is teaching them about how social media algorithms work. Because I think if you start there and you can teach people that, hey, this post, this video is curated by a computer program to keep you engaged, you are being in so many words, manipulated. That can just add a little bit of friction when they are on Facebook or Instagram or wherever because they're thinking about what the algorithm is feeding them. So that's that's one of the, the, the most effective things I found at trying to get people to slow down a little bit on social media. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking with Joy Mayer of Trusting News and Alex Mahadevan of MediaWise at the Pointer Institute about how to rebuild trust in the media. When we come back, we'll talk about Taylor Swift, Doritos journalism, the Kitty Litter conspiracy, and election coverage. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking about disinformation and how journalists can work to win back trust and keep the public better informed. Let's get back to the conversation with Joy Mayer of Trusting News and Alex Mahadevan, director of MediaWise at Pointer. Joy, where do you turn to for your news and what kind of social media platforms do you like to scroll through? Well, I'm a big consumer of news and a big consumer of social media. I mean, for me, it's not so much about which platforms are good or bad or reliable or unreliable as it is about the specific messengers because a TikTok video, as Alex said, the Washington Post TikTok is great, right? So there's nothing wrong in my mind with getting news on these different platforms. They just each come with with these caveats. So in our work, what we what we try to teach journalists to do is to to put themselves in the place of this, the TikTok scroller and say, okay, Washington Post, if you're sharing news on TikTok, embed into that story information about what makes it credible. What does make a Washington Post story showing up in your TikTok feed different than a post from somebody you've never heard of before? Well, actually quite a bit that journalists take for granted. We like to think that everybody understands what makes um, mission-driven, responsible, public service journalism different from other kinds of messages. But the fact is a lot of people don't know that. And they're consuming news, as Alex said, passively. Um, you know, my, news is like what what's in the feed, what's on what's on the TV at the gym, right? That's where they're deciding what to trust. And so, in my dream world, journalists would earn the trust and demonstrate their credibility much more actively day to day by saying, um, "Here's why we're doing this story. Here's why these sources are the credible ones. Here are the questions we asked. Here are the questions we didn't get answers to, and we're going to keep asking. Here's how we sourced. Here's our ethics policy, by the way, and this part of our ethics policy." informed how we reported this story today. That sounds great, but you do have to have a certain amount of receptiveness from your audience, right? And as Alex was saying, like the the way these algorithms work and these platforms are designed is to keep you engaged, keep you scrolling, keep you enraged in some cases. So people may have all that information at their fingertips and realize that they're being played in some way. And they're like, I don't care. I just want to get my rage fixed for the day. So how do you get around that? Well, that is a problem of psychology are you just here to be enraged? And are you open to the idea that a different take on this might help you see it a different way? I have teenagers. One of my sons gets consumes a lot of news and it's all from YouTube. And so when he says, is this account trustworthy? Or mom, I want you to see this video. This guy sounds really smart. My primary question is usually, if that story didn't confirm the message that this guy's YouTube channel exists to push out, would he have done the story? Like, is there an open-mindedness behind this that is that is about informing people, or are we just picking and choosing whatever is going to fuel the outrage that day? And so that, for me, is a fundamental step. Whether that person has a journalism background and journalism goals or not, 
is that is the basic function of informing people present. But your teenager is asking the right questions, right? I mean, this, this would be kind of like your goal, Alex, for informed listeners and viewers. You want people to be questioning what they're reading and, and seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, just uh, building off that point, a, a lot of this, too, is an audience engagement problem. You know, so what the goal of the Teen Fact Checking Network is so when a teen is scrolling through, it looks like what they would see. You know, these fact checks look like what they see on TikTok. They are cool. They use the green screen effect. Uh, the host is very confident. Um, we're working on some re research right now that has shown that Teens associate confidence with trustworthiness. They associate the number of followers with trustworthiness, uh, and they check comments for fact checks. So our goal now is try to trying to like adapt our content to to match the platform, so we can kind of, in a way, you know, trick people into consuming like good stuff on mm. TikTok. I wonder too about AI because you've written a bit about this too, Alex. Where does that fit into the conversation about trust in media and? How big of a threat do you think it is to whether people choose to place their trust in journalists covering a story or not? Well, there there are two schools of thought on this. So, um, you know, and I've written about it both ways. Um, so uh, a, a lot of experts think that, you know, the rise of AI is going to lower the barrier of entry to disinformers, uh, i.e. it's going to get really cheap and easy to create a lot of fake content, a lot of misleading content, uh, deep fakes, and churn them out very quickly. So you're going to have a polluted information ecosystem, and that lowers overall trust because people don't know uh, whether what they're seeing is it can be believed, you know? Um, the other school of thought is that, you know, people are already consuming, the, the people who consume misinformation are already consuming a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And so the demand for misinformation is not going to change if you see a lot of AI pouring in. And so with the Israel-Hamas war, what uh, what we've seen is a, a lack of this AI misinformation because disinformers are just sharing video game clips or old war footage or um, uh, real footage that's been miscontextualized. So uh, personally, though, I, I am concerned. I, I think right now I'm trying to build um, uh, AI into all of the curricula that we're developing, um, but it, it remains to be seen mm, what the impact will be. Joy, I want to come back to... Um what people consume and what they trust and you were talking about how people tend to trust the news sources that they go to and consume on a regular basis but there's a lot of competition in the news space right and there's a whole range of from legacy journalism organizations to startups to everything in between podcasters bloggers etc i wonder if part of the problem about trust in the media kind of in general is that people aren't watching enough or reading enough uh, or listening to enough to place their trust in a particular media outlet. So how, how do news organizations kind of get the attention of listeners and consumers and viewers in this crowded sphere of uh, news? That's a great question. I think it's something that newsrooms do not invest nearly enough in. If you go to most news websites or subscribe to a newsletter or pull up a social feed, you're going to get precious little information about why this organization exists what they cover, sometimes even where they're located. I could spend a bunch of time on a TV station's website before I actually see the name of the city where they're located. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, you know, much less what their ethics are, who they're funded by, um, what sort of guardrails they have about funding and who makes decisions about the news. Our research really shows that when people see those things behind the scenes, when they're invited into a news meeting, when they see information along with the story about how and why it was reported, that they're 
perception of the brand's credibility goes up. Their understanding of, oh, these are just local people in my town making decisions. It's not some sort of corporate boss. So the the question of um, of, of choice for me begins with a newsroom being ready to tell the story of what it's doing in a way that will connect with people. You know, as we consider social media feeds, um, we would not invent today a lot of the media that we have. If we're talking about reaching Alex's, you know, the, the teenagers that Alex, that MediaWise was created to reach, well, they're not gonna read a newspaper or come to public radio. If we actually think about what does the public require of journalism? What if we measured our success by actually how informed the public was, not by whether they came to us on our platform and clicked in the ways that make it easy for us to measure, but is the public actually informed? Well, journalism as a whole is failing if the question is, is the public informed? And I think we need to be asking a lot of really hard questions about um, how we, ex how we, where we derive our value, how we explain what we do, and whether that message is resonating with the public. You mentioned 2016, and, and, and that's the, the year that Trusting News started. Mm -hmm. And when you think about 2016 and even 2020, I mean, those are kind of, I guess, marquee years in terms of political coverage. A lot of soul searching came about after those two years when news organizations, organizations were looking to see, you know, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? And I think you could kind of start to see some of the, that sort of trust really start to erode from, from the public and, and media institutions. When you think about how this next election, the 2024 election, has been reported, what do you think news organizations are getting right? What are they still getting wrong when it comes to try and, trying to bring the audience along and, and make sure that more trust isn't lost? Well, one of the areas of work that um, is most challenging and most important, I think, for trusting news and for the newsrooms we work with is really diving into understanding the lack of trust among independents and people who lean right. You know, I'll work with, I was, um, I'll work with a, newspapers in the South or public radio stations or TV stations in really conservative areas. And they'll say, we're going to go out of business. If we don't figure this out, if people do not trust us, to, to, the people of Tennessee don't trust us to give them news, we're going to go out of business and we're just seeding people to further right news sources. We absolutely have to understand this. And so um, we're learning as much as we can about that and developing strategies for newsrooms to um, to provide on-ramps to coverage that make sense to them, to um, use language and reflect values that resonate with people. I think that um, you know one thing newsrooms don't talk about enough is that um, people who work in newsrooms are more likely to work in urban areas. They're more likely to lean left. They're less likely to have a regular faith tradition at the center of their lives. They've they've been to higher education. Like there are ways in which journalists themselves are often different from the communities they serve, and that affects what they find interesting, what they are curious about, what they find problematic, that that set of values. I, I, it's not about an intention to mislead people or, a, or an intention to have um, left-leaning coverage, but there is something about the makeup of newsrooms that shows up in our coverage and that makes people who lean right say, gosh, that news is not made for or by people like me. What about the split between what maybe a newsroom wants to cover and what an organization decides is important? I mean, I'm thinking of one example news organization saying, we're going to hire a Taylor Swift reporter. And you had a lot of journalists coming out and saying, look, there's so many more things. I mean, and Taylor Swift is obviously a legitimate story to be covering, but there are so many other things that really desperately need coverage, whether it's politics, whether it's school board elections, whether it's healthcare. So what about that kind of divide? Well, sure. I think that, you know, the, the divide about how sort of 
broccoli journalism versus Doritos journalism, serious journalism versus um, kind of a entertainment saying, journalism. Are you saying Doritos aren't nutritious? <laughs> Sadly, they are not. I mean, that's, you know, that goes, that's been a, a problem, a, a topic of discussion and consternation as long as I've been in journalism. I actually thought the pushback to the Taylor Swift reporter from USA Today was really funny. I mean, you cannot possibly argue that, that, this phenomenon around Taylor Swift is not worth one dedicated reporter. And I think pitting that against somehow, like if you invest in that, you don't care about serious news is silly. Just thinking about misinformation and thinking about the more near term future, what would be your hope leading up to the 2024 election? Like what do journalism organizations have to be thinking about? What are some of your fears about the way the next 11, 12 months may pan out? I think Newsrooms need to uh, be on the platforms where misinformation is spreading. I think they need to uh, be much more in tune with covering, like, uh, you know, national misinformation narratives, which always end up in the local level. Litter boxes in schools, a debunked theory is everywhere in this country. Um, Sorry, j- just, just walk me through that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there is a common misinformation trope right now that uh, they are putting litter boxes in schools to accommodate uh furries and it's essentially it's a it's a um a a way to try to further marginalize you know um anyone who's different you know it's it is it's total bunk but it's like a you know it 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 has been pushed to uh assert you know parental rights organizations uh ability to um basically come into schools and dictate rules and stuff like that but it's an example of how local newsrooms need to be covering misinformation they cannot just go right to you know the crime coverage and you know traditional coverage got to be covering some of these these topics because what happened and i've heard from newsrooms is that they were hearing murmurings about people going to the capitol on january 6th they were hearing about these small organizations in their towns but their editors were like, you know, who, who cares about that? That's, you know, some fringe group. Why, why are we writing about it? You know, why would we want to amplify that? But you got to stay in tune with that because, you know, we saw what happened on January 6th, you know, and we should have been covering that from the very beginning. Joy, what do you think? I mean, are, are newsrooms ready for this next election and the months that will follow? I think, you know, some are, some are more ready than others. I keep coming back to the question of what success looks like for journalism. What are we here to do? And I think that especially when you look at local journalism, most people are not waking up in the day saying, how can I be most informed today? News is a a small piece of their life. People have casual relationships to the news. They certainly don't want to be manipulated and they care about being informed, but it's not a, it's not a passion of theirs. And so I just, my hope for, for newsrooms is that they will, meet people where they are, whether it's on social platforms or, you know, addressing rumors circulating around town, and that they will not expect that putting out information they in traditional methods in a way that does not reach most of their community will suffice. If it's an existential crisis for journalism, and if, as you say, you know, there is this kind of key role that journalists and journalism organizations play in society, what does that then make you think about when you think about things like democracy and civic rule and things like that? Yeah, the, the ultimate problem is that communities require access to information in order to thrive. In order to self-govern, we need a shared set of facts. We need a shared playing field for debate. And whether journalists are hosting that debate or, or amplifying that debate, adding information to fuel that debate, our role is compromised 
if we're not trusted by the majority of the community to do that. Well, I want to thank you both. Alex Mahadevan is Director of MediaWise at the Poynter Institute. Alex, thank you. Thank you so much. And Joy Mayer, Director of Trusting News. Joy, thank you. Appreciate it. This conversation was recorded at the Poynter Institute in St. Petersburg. You can find a longer version on our website, wusf.org. There you'll also find archived episodes of Florida Matters. You can also subscribe to Florida Matters anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. That's our show for this week. Steve Newborn is our producer. Production assistance from Mary Shedden. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.